Luke chapter 11 open in front of you. Uh, We're going to be looking this evening at this text in terms of uh, what it teaches us about Jesus' own teaching on the way to pray. And when we talk about prayer, uh, it's easy to forget sometimes that we're not just talking about prayer in a general sense. We're talking about Christian prayer. That is, prayer that addresses God as a heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus, His Son, our Savior. And that has to frame, therefore, everything that we say this evening about prayer. This isn't a technique, generally, for prayer that Jesus holds out to us. Rather, it's a gift of His teaching to those of us who are sons and daughters of the Father by faith in the Lord Jesus. But it is indeed a great gift because Jesus in these, in these uh, sections of Luke's Gospel, these verses, teaches us precious truths about how to pray. I saw recently on a blog post about prayer someone citing Martin Lloyd-Jones who evidently wrote at one point in his long and fruitful ministry that there's nothing more difficult, actually, about the Christian life than prayer. I don't know if that resonates with you, but it does certainly with me. That uh, sometimes prayer comes very easily. Sometimes I feel like praying. Sometimes I get up early enough to make that happen. Sometimes, but not always. And in fact, sometimes I'm borne along by my own my own mood, my own weakness, and find it quite difficult to pray, to be disciplined to pray, to know what to say when I pray, to know how to pray. Prayer is something that is a challenge for us in the Christian life. Yet here in these words, in this text, the Lord Jesus gives us great encouragement and great instruction as way to pray. And we're going to look at this in terms of three sections this evening. I think the text divides itself that way for us. First of all, we'll have a look at verses 1 to 4, where Jesus gives us a pattern for prayer. A pattern for prayer. Then, verses 5 to 10, Jesus teaches us what the, what the correct posture for prayer might be. And finally, in verses 11 to 13, the promise that attends our prayers. So a pattern for prayer, the posture for prayer, and the promises that attend our prayers. But I'd ask you, just as we start this evening, how are you doing with prayer? Andy's preached to us in recent months about prayer at various points. Uh, Prayer, I think, is always on our minds, and yet it does us well to consider how are we doing with prayer? How often do you pray? What do you pray? What do you pray for? How do you pray what you pray? What is going on in your spirit, in your heart, in your mind as you pray? How do you approach prayer? With those questions in our minds, let's listen to what our risen Lord Jesus says to us in these words about prayer. We want to to read these verses, as we want to always read, uh, in context, don't we? And uh, unfortunately, we're not in the middle of a series in Luke here, just now. 
But if we can, for just a moment, we want to set these verses in chapter 11 within context. So if you keep your finger there in chapter 11, and just turn back to Luke chapter 1, we'll be reminded about Luke's general purpose in writing his gospel. Luke opens in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, by saying there are a lot of people already in the mid-first century who have undertaken to write up an account of the things that have happened around Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But he's going to write us a new account. He's going to do it in a certain way, having interviewed eyewitnesses, having examined carefully what it was that happened. And look at this in verse 4, the purpose for which Luke writes, all that he writes so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Very interesting purpose statement that hangs over the text that we're listening to tonight. Luke wants us, and God wants us, the Holy Spirit wants us, as we listen to these verses, to have an increased, a strengthened certainty in our Christian faith an increased certainty about those things we have been taught. The very term here is literally catechized into. We, we need not just to know about Jesus, not just to know about the Christian life, that we should pray, for example. We need to be taught how to pray, why to pray, how to approach prayer, how to have great certainty that when we pray, God listens to us as a father does to his children. That's part of the purpose of this gospel to increase our certainty in the Christian faith. But if you flip all the way to the end of Luke's gospel, because we have to look at the other frame, the other bookend, if you will, on this gospel that helps us to read all that comes in the middle. Not only does Luke want us to have greater certainty that we can indeed approach the Father in prayer, that we do have access to him through the Lord Jesus, he wants us to have something even more. Do you see how Luke ends his gospel? Because right through the gospel of Luke, Jesus is following a literal, physical way. He wins his way through the narrative of the gospel to Jerusalem. And at a certain point, beginning in chapter 9, he sets his face like flint, as it were, toward Jerusalem. He's resolute in going towards Jerusalem, where, we're told he will have a kind of exodus of his own. He will go to the cross, and then he will be raised from the dead, and then he will ascend. He will be taken up. That's the journey Jesus takes as he goes through the pages of Luke's gospel. And Luke wants us, as we listen to him counting these things, to become better followers of Jesus along that way, because he's teaching us the way of Jesus both in his gospel and in its sequel, the book of Acts. There's an emphasis on the way. That's one of the names that the early Christians uh, were, were given and took upon themselves, was the way. And they were taught about the truths of the way. And they had their lives shaped and formed as followers of the way. That's the kind of thing that Luke wants to happen in our lives as we hear his gospel. And where does that way lead us to at the very end of the gospel? Do you see it here? Verses 50, 53 of chapter 24. When he, that is Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, just across the valley from Jerusalem and up the hill, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. 
That's where Jesus is at the end of Luke's gospel and at the beginning of Acts. That's where he is now, this evening. He has been taken up. He not only lives the resurrection life, he lives that life standing at the right hand of the Father. He is the ascended Lord Jesus. And then what happens? Verse 52. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Do you see the bookends that Luke puts on his gospel? And how that's meant to shape us as followers of this way? He wants us to have an increase of certainty and confidence. But he also wants us to grow in joy. A joy that issues in worship. Those are the bookends, I suggest to you, in between which we want to hear our text tonight in Luke chapter 11. May we grow in confidence, but also in great joy as we hear this teaching that Luke holds out to us on prayer. Great confidence, but also great joy. Let's have a look at verses 1 to 4 and see what we find here in terms of the pattern of prayer that Jesus holds out to us. There's a clear shift here uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 11, away from the earlier section that we've just come off of in verse 10, if we've been reading continuously. Coming from the home of Martha and Mary, Jesus then is found praying in a certain place. Now, that's interesting, a certain place, because Luke Luke's a pretty good geographer. He knows where places are. He's mentioned Bethany. He talks about other cities and villages. But here, it's not the place that's important. It's not even the people who are important. Because the only named figures that we have in all of these verses are Jesus and John. The people who are requesting things, those who figure in the illustrations, are all unnamed. The focus, therefore, here for us is on Jesus and his instruction about prayer. So one day, verse 1 tells us, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, as he stopped, as he paused, one of his disciples made a request of him. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. This verse confirms what we know from other places that in this time, in the first century, Jewish people who were serious about their faith, serious about worshiping Yahweh as God, wanted to learn how to pray. And they often asked rabbis, teachers, to teach them to pray. So we see here, it's known, at least to this person who's asking Jesus this request, that John, that is John the Baptist, has taught his disciples how to pray. We know from other places that other rabbis taught their disciples how to pray. In fact, we have examples of these, even outside the Bible. One of the famous ones is called the 18 Benedictions. And when you look at the 18 Benedictions, you realize that it sounds a lot like what we're going to see in these following verses, what we call the Lord's Prayer. It begins by addressing God, and then it moves to asking Him for certain things, confessing sin. And this was a pattern of prayer that was used by Jews in the first century. But Jesus here, Jesus is not just any rabbi, is He? This is Jesus Himself, the Son of God, the Messiah, teaching us a new and simple pattern for prayer. This is the one through whom we pray, telling us 
how we ought to pray, giving us a pattern for prayer. Uh, some of you will have heard me, uh, oh, I don't know how many months ago now, when we met at uh, Andy and Catherine's for an evening with the 20s and 30s group, talk about another great pattern for prayer from Martin Luther. Uh, so Martin Luther, in the spring of 1535, was getting a haircut, probably a shave as well, or at least a trim, from his barber. And his barber, Peter, asks him, Martin, how do I pray? Teach me to pray. I'm not very good at prayer. I'd like to learn how to be better at prayer. And so Martin Luther goes home, and he writes down some thoughts and sends them to his barber, Peter. And he says right at the beginning of these thoughts that he sends, Look, Peter, I'm going to do the best I can to tell you how to pray. This is from my own experience, lean on the scriptures, but may the Lord grant you grace to do it even better than I do it. And then Martin Luther proceeds to do the same sort of thing that the rabbis in the first century were doing. That is, to use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern, as a framework, as a scaffolding to pray from, not a rote prayer, not a kind of formula or ritual prayer where we just say the words with our lips but our hearts are cold, our minds are bored and removed because these words are so familiar. But instead, Martin Luther, like those early rabbis, takes the Lord's Prayer and begins to show how we might improvise on it. How we might use that as a springboard for our own prayer. So, Martin Luther comes to this first petition in verse 2, when Jesus tells us, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. And this is what Martin Luther writes. Yes, Lord God, dear Father, hallowed be thy name, both in us and throughout us and throughout the whole world. Destroy and root out the abominations, idolatry, and heresy of all false teachers and fanatics who wrongly use your name and in scandalous ways take it in vain and horribly blaspheme it. They insistently boast that they teach your word and laws of the church, but they really use the devil's deceit and trickery. And they wretchedly seduce many poor souls throughout the world, even killing and shedding much innocent blood. And in such persecution, they believe that they are rendering to you a divine service. Dear Lord, convert and restrain. Convert those that are still to be converted. And catch this. Remember, Martin's started with, Father, hallowed be thy name. And now he's off and running with his own prayer. And listen to this part of his prayer so that they, with us and we with them, may hallow, may make holy and praise your name, both with true and pure doctrine and with a good and holy life. Restrain those who are unwilling to be converted, so that they may be forced to cease from misusing, defiling, and, defiling and dishonoring thy holy name, and from misleading the poor people. Amen. And you might say, hang on, Martin, how did you get there from Father, hallowed be thy name? But do you see what he's doing? Do you see how he's taking that first petition and he's making it his own? He's letting that spur him to the kind of prayer that is personal, 
that is passionate, that wraps up in it his own concerns, his own time and place and context, and that goes off and running and prays. It's not just a rote formula. It's not just something on our lips to say, Father, hallowed be thy name, and we move on. Instead, we pause, and we take this as a pattern, as a framework for prayer, and we make it our own prayer. Jesus gives us a pattern for prayer, and it spurs us to begin, therefore, with God and not with ourselves. Do you see Do you see the movement here in this simple prayer, this simple pattern? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And only then, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our... Do you see that movement? That Jesus teaches us to begin with God, to begin with God as a holy God, as a Father, and then to begin to move outward from God, outward into the world, thy kingdom come, and then ultimately to ask for things that matter to us personally. Do you see that movement in this pattern? So we take these petitions and we make them our own. We start with God and we work out from him and his power, his glory, his holiness to the things that concern us. Is that what your prayers look like? Is that how you pray? Or do you, like me, like many of us perhaps, tend to pray prayers that are more focused on ourselves, on our own requests, on our own needs? Do we tend to start with the things that are most pressing from our standpoint? Now, of course, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. The Lord delights, and as we'll see uh, in just a moment, delights to hear our requests. But actually, if we take this revealed pattern, this pattern that the Lord Jesus himself gives us, we don't want to start there. We want to start with God himself and remind ourselves of who our God is, what kind of God he is, how he is perfectly placed to answer the kinds of prayers we're about to pray to him. And as we start with God in prayer, we find great encouragement, don't we? Isn't it encouraging to remind ourselves in prayer that God is a holy God. Doesn't that encourage us to pray that his kingdom would come? Doesn't that encourage us to remember that there is sin in our own lives and to humble us right from the first word? Because our God is a holy God. But isn't it encouraging as well to remember, to start this way, that our God is a Father to us, a Heavenly Father, one who beckons us as a father to a child to draw near, to ask what we will of Him, a Father who loves us, and a holy and exalted God who is able to do all of those things that we ask, and even more. That's how Jesus tells us to begin with prayer. Well, He goes on. We could, we could dwell, couldn't we? on each and every petition that we find here in what is a very brief prayer, even more compressed than the version that we find in Matthew chapter 6. But suffice it for this evening, if we can remember that Jesus is here in these verses 1 to 4, 
holding out to us a pattern for prayer that we should not only repeat and not only emulate, but that we should improvise on. If you can, if, if, if you can hear it in the right way, then do. Let your prayers be a little bit like that only form of music which America has perhaps ever bequeathed to the world, that is jazz. Not in an irreverent sense, but in the sense that these petitions provide us with a kind of motif. And then we improvise. We improvise from our hearts, from what we know about God, from his word. In whatever situation we find ourselves, we pray with this as our pattern. A pattern for prayer that our Lord holds out to us. Uh, We can't move on, though, without looking at that uh, verse 4a. The very first part of verse 4. Forgive us our sins. It's so easy. Isn't it so easy to move past that little phrase so quickly? Forgive us our sins. Yet I would urge you, brothers and sisters, I would urge you never to pray without this being part of your prayers. How can we pray to a holy Father in heaven without also praying, forgive us our sins? For the sake of Christ, forgive us our sins. So that whether we rise first thing in the morning, we hit the alarm, the cobwebs begin to recede oh so slowly, and we pray to the Lord, let us pray, Father, forgive us our sins. Because we know, don't we, our need for forgiveness. When we pray at mealtimes, when we pray through the day, when we have a chance to pray with someone, let us not be blinded by the urgency of the request so that we forget to pray, Father, Forgive us our sins. And we come humbly again as sinners who have found salvation through the Lord Jesus. When we pray in the evenings, the last thing before we remember anything else on the pillow, let us pray, Father, forgive us our sins for the sake of Christ. Absolutely critical part of this pattern of prayer. I would commend to you as well, if you want to think about these things in the coming week, and you, uh, and you either have or know of, or maybe you don't, but you'd like to discover the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So if you're here this morning, Andy was reading to us from our standards. So as, as Presbyterians, as free church folk, as Reformed folk, we take these documents not as Scripture, but as a representation of what is taught in Scripture. And right there at the end of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Questions 99 to 107, the last run of questions. Guess what we have? We have this pattern of prayer, the Lord's Prayer, unpacked very helpfully for us. So if you want a little bit of a boost in thinking about how to improvise on this pattern, have a look there at questions 99 to 107, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Lord Jesus gives us this wonderful pattern for prayer to make our own in our prayers. And then in verses 5 to 10, we shift slightly, don't we? We shift because we get a little signal, then he said to them. Now we're moving on to an illustration. But it's an illustration that also relates to prayer, doesn't it? Verses 5 to 10, we find not a pattern for prayer, but the posture with which we should approach the Lord in prayer. A posture for prayer. And the key to this little illustration, a beautiful little illustration about the man coming in the middle of the night to his friend's door being told, get out of here, go away, I'm already in bed. For goodness sakes, leave me alone. But he persists. 
He keeps banging on the door, doesn't he? And that's the key to this illustration. Right there in verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness. And some of you might have a little note there if you're using the, the church Bible. Down to the bottom, it says it could also be persistence. It's not a common word in the New Testament. Uh, but this is the key. This word is the key to the illustration. It's, it's the posture. It's the manner. It's the attitude which issues in a kind of action as this man refuses to go away empty-handed from the door of his friend. We might even translate it tenacity, boldness. Some translations have impudence. A nice range there to capture what is going on here. This is the posture Jesus says that we ought to have as we come with our prayers to our Heavenly Father. Uh, Now, uh, we are fairly new to this country still, uh, and we've been acculturating, I hope, gradually, bit by bit, uh, as we've been living in India for the last 14 months or so. And one of the things we were told early on uh, by some other American friends who have lived here much longer was, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful, Brad, they told me, with English folk. Now, maybe this is different with Scots, I don't know, or others of you. But uh, this is what we were told. You've got to be very careful in asking for help, in asking for favors or assistance. I said, why? Why would that be? And I was told, well, that's because there's this very interesting social unspoken rule that if you are asked, you you are then obliged to help. So you better be very careful, I was told, that if you ask, you really need the help. Because otherwise, you might just obligate that person, and they'll never tell you no. They won't tell you no, but they might really not want want to help or be able to help. So you've got to be careful when and what you ask for. Now, I don't know if that's a true stereotype or not, but it's something that I was given early on, that this is a kind of uh, British cultural habit, uh, this sense of obligation. Whereas I know back, uh, back home in the States, of course, I might just go over and bang on the door of my neighbor, ask for some eggs or some milk, something we're short of. Not, not a second thought, because if they don't want to give it to me, they're going to tell me, sorry, you got to go down the road and get your own at the grocery. Uh, Maybe that's not quite the same here, I was told. Well, I I don't know if that's completely true, because I've had a lot of help from English folk, even in the middle of the night, uh, not least five weeks ago when we knocked on a a neighbor's door to take us to hospital so we could have a new baby, and we were greeted with with a lot of helpful, uh, uh, even joy, from friends and neighbors. But that's the kind of picture going on here, isn't it? That sense of how can we approach God with what kind of expectation, with what kind of attitude can we approach him just as this friend does his neighbor in the middle of the night? Do we need to be afraid that we're imposing ourselves upon God, that we are an imposition upon him, that somehow he will hear us knocking at the door in prayer and roll his eyes and sigh deeply and say, here he comes again. Here she comes again with that same request at this inconvenient moment. Why again? 
Is that what we ought to expect when we come to God with prayer? This, Jesus teaches us, is absolutely not the case, isn't it? Absolutely not the case. We come with a posture of great confidence, great boldness, great urgency. And here's the key, urgency. It's the urgency of our need, the urgency of our request that drives us to that door in the middle of the night. I've got to get my wife to hospital. That's the kind of urgency here that we ought to be praying for. When we pray for our loved ones, for our friends, for our neighbors who don't know Christ as Savior, that's the urgency that drives us to pray. When we pray for the funds or the finances to make it to the end of the month or the year, that's the urgency with which we pray. When we pray for the wisdom that we do not have, for decisions that we are faced with, that's the urgency with which we pray. When we pray for relief, for spiritual relief from the cloud that has been hanging over us, this is the urgency with which we pray. And we don't just come urgently, we stay. We keep knocking. We pray with urgency, but we also pray, Jesus teaches us, with tenacity. We hold on, we cling to his promises. We cling to what we know about God. We cling to the fact that he has told us he will answer us when we call. And we pray with urgent tenacity again and again, never giving up in our prayers. That's what we're taught here in verses 5 to 10. That's the posture of prayer for the Christian who knows that our God is a God who answers prayer. So we have a pattern for prayer that the Lord Jesus gives us. We have a posture for prayer. And finally, in the last section of our passage this evening, verses 11 to 13, we see the great and precious promises that attend our prayers when we pray. Do you see that slight shift uh, again there in, uh, in verse 11? In verse 11 uh, of our passage, it shifts slightly from the illustration of the man who's been knocking on the door to another illustration of what it means to ask. So the language of asking continues, but the image shifts so that our, our focus is also shifted to a different aspect of what's going on when we pray. We're taught something further about prayer in verses 11 to 13. And what we're taught uh, taught about are the promises that attend our prayers. And this is the kind of argument you make when, when you argue from the lesser to the greater. This is the kind of thing that perhaps we use uh, in our own families sometimes when, when, when we say, well, surely if that's the case, then how much more Will this be the case? That's the pattern of argument Jesus uses here in this illustration. Do you see it? And do you see what's, what, what forms the lesser half of that pattern? It's human fathers giving gifts to their children. Human fathers giving gifts to their children. That's the lesser side of this comparison in which we're meant to be taught something significant about what happens when we pray. And do you notice as well the reemergence of the word father here? So we started in Jesus' pattern of prayer by learning to address God as our heavenly father. 
And we finish here thinking about God as the best kind of human father and even more, even greater. God, Jesus urges us, is our father. That is critical when we come to him in prayer. We don't just come to him as a great and high and exalted God, although we do do that. We come to God as a father, and we should pray to him in those terms. We should call him our father as we pray. But there are great promises when we have God as our father. And the key here is the focus on the gentle goodness, the gentle goodness of a faithful Father, those are the promises that we can grasp as we pray to God as Father. So do you see the repetition? How many times the word give or gift is used in these verses, even verses 11 through 13? Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What kind of God do we have? What kind of Father is he to us as we approach him in prayer? He is a generous, a generous Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. When I was 14, my dad gave me one of the best gifts I ever got. It was a complete surprise, and I'm, I'm sort of hard to surprise, so I loved it even more because it was a surprise. Opened up the envelope on my birthday. Inside were two tickets to go see the Chicago Bulls. Now, this is a basketball team, for those of you who haven't had the, uh, the wonderful opportunity of American basketball being in, in the area. I grew up a few hours' drive south of Chicago, so that meant we got in the car. I got to have a three-hour drive just with my dad up to Chicago. We got there. We parked. We went into the arena, and I got to watch Michael Jordan, who was at the height of his powers, score 39 points on the night and shut down the opposition. It was fantastic. And then we came out, got a Bulls t-shirt from my dad as well as we left the arena, drove home. It was a fantastic, brilliant gift and evening. My dad loved to give good gifts to me. Now, I, now I'm on the other end of that, in a sense, as a father. And I know the joy of a father, not just the joy of a son who receives, receives good things from his dad, but the joy of a father in giving gifts. What a delight it is as parents, those of you who have children, to give gifts to your children that bring delight to them. How much more? Do you see, do you see the logic, the comparison there? If that is true, even of us, even of us in our sinfulness and our frailty and our selfishness, then how much more is that the case with our Heavenly Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. But do you notice it's not just good gifts. If we think good gifts, we have in our minds what comes in Matthew chapter 7, the parallel passage here. What does Luke say? What does Luke say the Father loves to give us here in Luke eleven thirteen? Do you see it? He loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The Holy Spirit. That gift of 
all gifts, that gift of God, which is his own presence with us. And do you see it then in in the context of Luke's gospel, tracking on to Acts, the risen Lord Jesus, who has taken this way through suffering, through death, has ascended and now reigns on high for us, has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us as his children. And so as children to a father, we ask the Lord, give us your spirit. Give us your spirit in full measure. Give us that greatest gift that you can give us, that inbreaking power of the new creation who transforms our hearts, who transforms our minds, who helps us to grow in holiness, who helps us to love those things which we ought to love, who helps us to hate that sin in our lives that we ought to hate. Give us that good gift, Lord God. Give us your Holy Spirit. And what does the Father delight to give us, according to Jesus? If not, the Holy Spirit itself, his own presence. And that is the gift, above all gifts, that transforms us. And I pray as we close this evening, that if you are already united to Christ by faith, you are already one who calls him Father, because you are joined to him through his Son, the Lord Jesus, that you will delight in the pattern for prayer that our Lord teaches us, that you will embrace that posture of urgent tenacity as you pray, and that you will revel in and ask for more of that good gift, the Holy Spirit, from our Heavenly Father. But if you are here this evening and you have not yet embraced the Lord Jesus by faith, this prayer, this kind of prayer, this kind of relationship to God is not open to you. And I say that not not to be negative in any way, but simply to tell you the truth. But I also want to remind you that if that's the case, if that's the case, there is nothing that stands in your way of embracing the Lord Jesus by faith. Because he invites you to do so. He invites you. You need only, you need only to pray that part of the prayer he taught us in that pattern. Verse 4, forgive us our sins. If you can humble yourself to repent of your sins and to cling to the Lord Jesus by faith, then you too can pray this prayer in this way. May God grant us all grace to grow in prayer, not as a burden, but as a wonderful gift of his grace. And may he answer our prayers and be glorified as we call upon his name. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you.